What is up, folks? Justin Kana here. This is the Emulsion Podcast. Welcome to episode 33. We are live here on YouTube right now, and if you're awesome enough to be subscribed and have notifications turned on on this about the time when you can start to join on this lovely live stream of ours. This is episode three of six that we're committed to doing here on YouTube. If you want to be involved in the conversation, do that because I want your opinions. I want to start a conversation. I want your perspectives and your questions. That's what makes this show great is you folks. But if you're not on YouTube or if you're listening to this after the fact, go ahead and tweet at me if you're here on Hey Gabriel, if you're on uh, any other platform, go ahead and tweet at me at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Uh, Hopefully you've gotten a little bit of a teaser from the trailer or maybe the name of this podcast. All of these stories actually fit into a very, very unique theme. So I'm super excited to bring that to you guys. And that is all about things that you should think about before opening a restaurant. And that's just the stories that have come up today. And I think that's super interesting. Today's beverage is some high-quality H2O. Uh, I've got to get my running game back here as we go into the winter time. So I think I'm attempting to kind of properly hydrate myself. I'm going to try and sneak in a run later today. Um, but that's one of the most monotonous beverages we've had on this show so far. Oh, well, hopefully you don't come to this show just for that. Um, but first, to start off, I want to kind of go into this week's first story, and that is all about cooking at home. And I know you're probably like, Justin, isn't this the emulsion? This is supposed to be that story, that show where I come to hear about restaurant news. And to that, sir or madam, I say yes, you're absolutely right. But what you failed to see, questioner person, is that while yes, we are in the restaurant industry, that is just one facet of the kind of mega conglomerate that is the way that people eat and drink on a daily basis. So This story comes out of the Harvard Business Review. This is the first time, at least to my memory, that we've used them as a source on this show. But the title of the article is, quote, Grocery grocery Industry Confronts a New Problem. Only 10% of Americans Love Cooking, end quote. Um, So this is kind of where I wanted to dig deeper. And this isn't me bashing Harvard Business Review because it's a great and definitely well-researched article, but the title is definitely clickbait, so here's what you need to know. Consumer behavior is affecting how food gets purchased here in the U.S., and statistically, grocery shopping and cooking are on a long-term decline. So the researcher and the author of this article, Eddie Yoon, did a study back in the day where he broke down consumers into three categories, and this is very important to remember. People who love to cook, People who cook, these are people who cook often. Number two is people who hate to cook and avoid the activity at all costs. And three, people who like to cook sometimes and do a combo of kind of eating out and cooking at home to make sure that they don't, you know, starve to death. So let me give you some numbers to go with these categories. 15% apparently at the time of that study loved it, 50% hated it, and 35% are in that kind of in-between category. So remember those numbers. 15% love it, 50% hate it, and 35% are in-between. So 15 years later, he did the study again and found that the numbers have shifted a little. So 10% love it, 45% hate it, and 45% are neutral. And this is where I get a little bit eked out by what, by the way that this was presented. So first of all, he blatantly says that he did the study for a different client at both different occasions. So who's to say that his data set was the same, right? Was it the same demographic of people? I don't know. So regardless, the per- percentages shifted to, I'd say, a more favorable amount. 
um, just because it's really hard to cook every single meal for yourself. I would, I, I mean, I don't know. Is there any of you that actually cook all three meals of the day for yourself? I mean, that that's such a time suck, and anything that sells you time is going to win, especially in 2017. So me, being an optimist that I am, I always look at it in a good light. So from 50% to 50% that hate it to 45% that hate it, I would say is good. You know, like that means that less people hate, quote unquote, hate cooking. And that's right on track with that 45% that are also in between. So I'd argue that the accessibility of things like food blogs and videos online and apps that make cooking easier is nothing but great. At least, you know, people are at least open to it. Um, you know, but it's fine. The, the article says that the percentage of Americans who really love to cook has dropped about a third in the fairly short period of time. If you dig deeper, you see that's just 5% shifted to a different side of the spectrum. Frustrating. But he talks about things like Blue Apron and Amazon and Whole Foods, blah, blah, blah. But then he makes a super interesting comparison where he likens this, like, quote-unquote, transition to sewing. And he says, as recently as the early 20th century, many people sewed their own clothing. And today, the vast majority of Americans buy clothing made by someone else, and the tiny majority who still buy fabric and raw materials do it mainly as a hobby. So if that's the kind of shift that's coming to the food industry, change leaders and corporate strategists will have their hands full, end quote. And that's where I kind of had to stop and think for a second, because at first I was all about ripping this article apart, and then I started to think, and I was like, yeah, I guess that's kind of similar, but this is something that I want to kind of point out, and it's something that I kind of like to keep in my pocket when I hear these stories about food startups. Food is perishable. I'm going to say it again. Food is perishable perishable. I totally get it that machines can make clothes faster than humans can. And machines can also make food faster than humans can. It's actually a story we're going to cover later today. But the point that doesn't matter is if us humans can't eat it fast enough, right? Or if we aren't willing to pay for what you're making. You can make 10,000 sweaters and they can sit on the shelf for eight months. And then if you sell them later, you sell them later. But if you make 10,000 portions of beef stroganoff, that's going to get sold or it's going to go bad, right? Plus, if you want to make it last, that is a ton of freezer space. And by the time you cover those costs, plus all the shipping and all the staff that you employ to make that happen, you're better off probably just going down the street to your favorite diner and getting that stroganoff a little bit closer to home. So, these companies or, you know, entrepreneurs that come at food like it's apparel or tech, they run into these problems really, really fast. And that, to me, is why we haven't seen anything like Blue Apron or Amazon Fresh kind of take over the world yet, because there's an incredible amount of logistical challenges that come with working with food. You know, you know, I mean, you know, you're a cook, right? So, The article continues to suggest that grocery stores should identify categories that are long-term losers. Uh, Is the audio bad for you guys? Sorry, guys. Let's see if I can fix that for you. Let's unplug and replug. Okay, hopefully. Did that change anything for you guys? I mean, hopefully. We'll see what happens. The video is now paused for me as well. Okay, cool. So we're back at it. So the article continues to suggest that grocery stores should, quote, identify categories that are long-term losers and exit by selling them while they can. Find and exit the categories whose fun-to-chore ratio is weakening where a food service proxy has gotten much better at greater value. Um... And even referencing a technique called MOTS, which is M-A-T-S, microwaved assisted thermal sterilization, where 
It, quote-unquote, sterilizes food with minimal heat, pressure, and time so that the texture and taste of food remains restaurant quality. Second, thanks to a minimal degradation of quality, there is super clean label, meaning the product will have few chemical-sounding, unpronounceable ingredients, and an incentive to to add high-quality ingredients to them. Third, the food remains packaged at room temperature and remains safe to eat for months on end. So the punchline here is, Embracing tech, reworking the business model, these are all things that I, of course, support and embrace and push for, and I repeatedly say them in this podcast, but I hate to make it sound like I hated this article, but I just want you to be aware, basically. As a listener of this podcast, I want you to be aware that there are problems in an industry that directly affects us in the you know, us people in the feeding people business, if they aren't cooking at home and they aren't buying frozen meals, they're going to come to us to eat. And that's nothing but an opportunity. But you need to at least have all of the information behind you. So next up is a story from one of you folks. Uh, It is frozen for me right now as well. Let's see if we can fix that. Uh, Sorry for everyone listening on the real podcast. It's frozen. We are just going to continue show. Sorry, guys. Cancel. Hmm. This is bizarre. Anyways, let's just continue shooting the show. Uh, Next up is a story from one of you folks. Amanda sent this to me over the weekend. Um... There is a ad from Corning Gorilla Glass that features a chef, and that is right, Matthew Acarino, the chef and owner of SPQR in San Francisco, uh, is <laughs> the star of an ad where Corning Gorilla Glass used him as a uh, person to to promote their Samsung Galaxy S8 phone. So she remarked to me when she shared me this story that they could have picked a celebrity or an athlete, but they show, they chose to highlight a chef in this case and how their product fits him and his lifestyle. So go ahead and read the piece on him should you desire. It's definitely a slightly romanticized piece on a chef that does some pretty cool stuff. Um, I definitely had a great meal with him uh, back when I ate at SPQR way back in the day. Um, he does some really great food. But um, he kind of talks about when he cycles and when he's in the restaurant and he can use his phone to kind of do that kind of stuff. Sorry, guys. I'm still screwing with the live stream here. Retake. And that's only because I want you guys to have the video of this. Um, hopefully this is working a little bit better. Uh, apologies to all the podcast listeners. So to me, this is way more real than getting some celebrity to hawk your stuff through an article um, or you know any sort of blog post. They explore his background and, uh, again, his love of traveling to Italy and foraging and all of it. So all to promote their glass. So to me, it's smart brand partnership for sure. Next up is straight out of the gossip column, Saison. Uh, the three Michelin star powerhouse in San Francisco is filing an intellectual property lawsuit to former employees for stealing their ideas. So let's dig a little bit deeper, shall we? There's two employees in question here, Matthew Mako, 
former director of hospitality at Cezanne. He was at the restaurant for four years, and he is now working with the former chef de cuisine of Cezanne, Rodney Wages, who is also the former chef de cuisine of Atelier Crenn. So he went from Cezanne to Atelier Crenn, and now they are working on a project called the RTB Fillmore, which is apparently a restaurant concept that they're trying out that started off as a pop-up, and now it is continuing into a a brick-and-mortar restaurant where they're apparently doing food that counts as quote-unquote unfair competition to Cezanne because they're charging $89 for their tasting menu where Cezanne charges $398 for their tasting menu. So you basically have two dudes from the same restaurant who left that restaurant, and now they're opening something that the original restaurant sees as stealing their intellectual property. Which is weird for me, because if you dig into it, Wages has described the pop-up to start as something that combines Chubby Noodle meeting Mencho Tokyo Ramen, and now they've kind of decided to upscale the entire experience by having a dish that apparently includes a $68 Wagyu supplement. But he still wants the concept to be relaxing and comfortable. To me, this is interesting coming from a you know, his background where he suffers from something that me and many chefs from our generation are suffering from, where we kind of don't want anything to do with our parents, that being the the, the chefs that we worked for. We want something that's a little bit more casual. It's not as intense and grandiose, but there's a little bit more to that. So the restaurant of theirs might get put on hold because Cezanne wants $500,000 from Mako, and that is the lawsuit that they're filing for intellectual property. So this lawsuit got duplicated on another guy, and that's why they're pursuing two separate lawsuits. Uh, His name is Anthony Keels, the former bar director, who is the beverage director now at this place called Eight Tables by George Chen. And Cezanne says that Keels altered recipes and attempted to, quote, serve a substandard substitute to customers before leaving the restaurant and taking trade secrets with him, end quote. That's so savage. So as for Cezanne, what are they saying? They say, quote, Cezanne takes great care and expends substantial resources to develop its intellectual property to make sure that its guests receive the, uh, to make sure that they receive the best experience. Any actions to sabotage that IP or undermine that experience are taken very seriously and expeditiously. Having said that, Cezanne is in the business of filing lawsuits and taking materials to a trial and is optimistic that there will be discussions between the parties to resolve this matter and look forward to having this matter put behind us promptly. End quote. Eater asks a question that I would love to pass on to you guys. When you work at these creative, boundary-pushing, lofty, fine-dining places for so long, eventually you want to move on, right? And eventually your peers also want to move on. But taking some of that knowledge that they've gained with them, how much are they allowed to use? That's the question that they ask and something that I'd like to... IP is intellectual property for anyone that's interested. That means their ideas, any, any of their recipes and any of that. So let me know in the comments whether you're listening on Twitter. I'd also love your thoughts there. Go ahead and let me know what you think. If you work at a restaurant and leave and use any number of those ideas that you learned or worked with... Is, are you in the right? Are you in the wrong? Does a restaurant have any uh, say in what you can and can't use? I'd love, I'd love your thoughts on this because it's super interesting to me. 
Next up is a story all about robots. We're going to reference that grocery store story we talked about just a few minutes ago, but this is a super fascinating time to be alive as technology kind of starts to overlap and starts performing some amazing feats of culinary prowess. So this past July, the Bratwurst bot developed by a company in Germany apparently took orders, cooked, and then served 200 orders of Bratwurst for a garden party, to which the department uh, manager of robotics at this company said, quote, people are not aware that technology has come this far, end quote, which literally sounds like the good start uh, of a great robot taking over the world movie. But students at the Space Spice Kitchen at MIT created a system that focuses on mixing and serving ingredients for complex meals, including winter veggie mac and cheese or chicken bacon sweet potato hash, both of which are almost completely independent of human rea- uh, interaction. So no humans were needed to make those, you know, interestingly sounding dishes. Um, that's not to say that robots are functioning all the way by themselves or even need to. At Zume Pizzeria, a pizza delivery startup based in Silicon Valley, human employees work alongside a pair of automated machines. Marta is apparently her name. And Bruno was apparently his name. So Marta apparently doggedly spreads marinara sauce on pizza dough in two seconds, and Bruno takes the pies topped by his human counterparts and pops them into the oven. So to quote the article now, quote, a fast food empl- as fast food employees continue their fight for $15 an hour, restaurant corporations have begun to look for and invest in technological replacements. But despite signs pointing towards the coming of that employee army, there's still the question of how soon that futuristic world would actually happen. Um... End quote. So the restaurants are great at unitasking, apparently, but they aren't so great at being able to kind of tackle whatever you throw at them like a human does just quite yet. Apparently, the randomness factor of fruits and vegetables provide a interesting roadblock to these robots. Cucumbers and apples aren't shaped the same, so the cucumbers have, so the computers have a difficult time being able to do both jobs. So also, another interesting point that they brought up was chopping lettuce apparently contains different pressure sensors than chopping a watermelon, so they're still currently in the process of developing the tech to kind of solve these sorts of problems. What about servers in the dining room? Can they be taken over by robots? We've almost all, almost all of us have probably placed an order uh, through our phone or on a giant screen in a fast food spot over the past couple of years, so we aren't quite you know, on the Star Wars level of that, you know, server that has a unicycle for legs rolling around serving us. But just as a funny example, quote, humans use a lot of reasoning and a lot of creativity to deal with challenges that happen. If there's a big party with two babies, well, they make the tables diagonal and put the babies at the ends of those diagonal tables. And now the configuration inside of the restaurant has changed completely. A robot can't do that yet. So another problem is price, but we all know how that goes. The amount of memory in the phone, the the smartphone that I'm using to record this live stream, was thousands of dollars just years ago. So that always scales super well as it spreads. But when we talk about $15 an hour wage restaurant workers, I don't know if you were to tell a CEO that you can pay a worker $50,000 a year or buy a $75,000 robot and the robot works faster and cleaner and doesn't need health insurance, it's hard for me to believe that a CEO would choose the human. Again, this is not me saying one way or another. I just want you folks to be aware that this stuff is happening, and whoever innovates is going to survive, and whoever doesn't is going to die. The example that I'd like to point out to you and something that I want you to keep in the back of your head is 
Apple, right? Apple embraces tech more than anyone, but they use it as a tool to kind of enhance the human element in all of their locations. Um, how can you think about that instead of kind of thinking that robots are quote unquote ruining our industry? I want all of you listeners in the podcast to be successful. So start to think of how these changes are, are very real and they're coming, but start to think about how they can benefit you and what you want to do in your career going forward. So ending the story, quote, you don't stare at your dishwasher as it washes your dishes in fascination because you know it's going to work every time. The person who said this quote says, I want robots to get to that stage of reliability, end quote. So last up, and at this point, we might as well call this episode the things you want to keep in mind if you want to start to open a restaurant, because all of these are related to that to that point. This article is all about what goes into opening a restaurant in San Francisco, specifically a omakase-style spot, down to the hard numbers. So I'd like to introduce you to Adam Tortosa. He is the subject of this entire article. Uh, he is opening a restaurant in San Francisco called Robin, a, f- quote, firmly untraditional omakase, end quote, uh, restaurant in Hayes Valley, which is a notoriously trendy space in San Francisco. So that's another thing to keep in mind as I give you all these numbers. It is in San Francisco, which is a notoriously expensive place, especially here in the U.S., but the piece is really, really good because Eater has been following Tortosa for the past two years, documenting this entire process for him, and here's what they learned. So he raised $600,000 from investors. Those were his parents, his family, his friends, and apparently he's really bad at selling, so he was not really the best at going out and getting these investments, but he got an offer for another $600,000 in return for half of the restaurant, but he turned it down. And then took another $50,000 investment, which made the, these people uh, what would generally be known as limited partners, which means they have no creative control. So they're basically in it for the money. You're in it to kind of pay them back their money, and their money helps you do what they do, helps you do what you do. So if the restaurant does not succeed, the hard truth is that they will not get their money back. So this is another thing that you should be aware of if you end up getting into these discussions anytime in your foreseeable future. But if the restaurant is successful, the investors stand to profit as long as Robin is open. That's the name of the restaurant. So if they've recouped their investment, of course, then they start to profit on top of that. If they're fully paid back, 100% of the of profits go to them, a common financial arrangement for first-time restaurants like Robin. So after that, those investors collectively own 25% of the restaurant and then will thus continue to get 25% of the profits as the restaurant goes forward. So why are people like, hopefully this now sees like, now you see why people are kind of apprehensive to invest in your restaurant going forward. It's, it's difficult. So on top of that, so now we start to get into other expenses or another investments, which is $100,000 that he got on ten- tenant improvement, which means that the landlord covers expenses that you're going to use to improve the space itself. So that helps bring his total to $700,000 in investment. So that's very important to keep in the front of your mind as we start to get into these harder numbers uh, that go into opening this restaurant. So he's got $700,000. $25,000 goes to consulting which goes to a guy named David Steele, who has experience in making restaurants work. So after that fee, they agreed on 7% of profits. Uh, they inc- they agreed on giving this David Steele guy a percentage of profits for the next seven years. So he's already locked into giving 25% of his profits away to the investors that gave him $50,000, plus a percentage to this David Steele guy. 
So he's not taking home a lot at this point after everything is said and done. Just short of $85,000 in rent and utilities, it is literally a 1,200 square foot space, and that is costing him $8,000 a month. Just to put that into perspective, that's double the size of my tiny apartment here in Seattle. That's $62 per square foot, which is crazy. Crazy. I told you it was expensive. So this consultant guy, this David Steele guy, who put him in touch with some architects who are doing their first foray into the restaurant design with this project, and they're charging $34,000 for that project. After that, he's got $22,000 in permits, a challenge in itself, apparently Tortosa references, where a city worker that forgot to drop off the plans in the correct bin, they just sat on his desk for a week, which stalled things and cost the guy $2,000 in rent for that wasted time. So if you remember, one week is $2,000 for this guy's time, so it's crazy. $5,000 in beer and wine licenses. That fee for architecture that we talked about earlier, that's just the design and the mechanics. We haven't even gotten into construction yet, so that happens now, and that was just short of $300,000. They also spent $3,000 just on fire alarms in that cost. Furniture and equipment, that is $38,000, $19,000 of which were on just the chairs. To Tortosa, these elements are crucial, though, saying, quote, I want Robin to have the personality and soul that I vision. The most important part is that the guest has fun, in my opinion, end quote. Plateware and other design, $60,000. Everything was custom for him. Artists, potters, everyone who got involved on this one got their fair share. All to add to the vibe of the spot, spending as much as $35 per wine glass. Now you know why Chef gets so mad when he hears one of those break. Branding and public relations, $24,000. Labor and other fees, $39,000. That includes insurance, taxes, accountants, feeds. Even the the chef's $22,000 salary, which is, you know, super minimal, he's taken home since starting in May. And he's also giving his employees health care should they choose to opt in. That goes into those costs. Opening food and alcohol, $26,000. So, after all of those costs, there's a $50,000 contingency account that he has made just in case for that rainy day. He has That brings his grand total to $701,095 to date on this project out of his $700,000 budget. And they open on Thursday. And this isn't even guaranteed that they're going to be full every night. So to recoup, they are forecasted to receive $1.8 million in total sales for their first year, but they are accounting to lose money on their first month. $135,000 in profit is what they are forecasting. The first year of being open, all of that goes straight back to the investors that made it possible for them to open. Tortosa says, I understand it's very unhealthy, but I base myself on the self-worth of my job. When you work in restaurants, you dedicate so much time and effort into something that doesn't pay you that well, that doesn't have good hours. There are not many redeeming qualities on that end. So success is what matters to me. I hope it works more than hope. I'm not leaving it up to hope. That's everything to me that it works. End quote. Whew, that was a lot of numbers. Hopefully that either got you super excited or made you never want to open a restaurant ever. It's one of the reasons I'm personally not looking for investors right now. I've been a part of multiple restaurant openings. I've seen the toll it takes on the people. Uh, I've been at places that are up and running and constantly trying to please their investors uh, that aren't making that profit that they want to see. It's just not for me. I'm convinced there's another way and I'm constantly exploring that. What does it look like to do something different? 
I, of course, wish Chef, Tor- wish Chef Tortosa the best of luck, and bravo on Eater for this kind of a piece. These kinds of things need to be talked about, at least for me, uh, because, you know, saying I want to open a restaurant and actually open a restaurant are on very, very different levels, and they're different animals. Do you want to open a restaurant? I'd love to know. Go ahead and leave those in the comments. Last up, I need to share our non-industry story this week. That has to do with Elon Musk and SpaceX. Hopefully you've seen this floating around the internet. It's all about his rocket ship flights that can literally get you anywhere in the world under an hour, most of them taking 30 minutes or less, all for the cost of apparently a normal airline ticket. Like, what? It's the future, guys. Go ahead and watch the video if you want. I'd be 3,000% down to take one of those for my next travel vlog. It would definitely make jet lag a super real thing where you can literally leave in the middle of the night and land in the middle of the day, and it would feel like real time travel. So with that, this has been episode 33 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Everybody on YouTube right now, go ahead and shoot me your questions one more time. For some reason, it doesn't show me on the uh, comments. I'd love to get into that little Q&A session after that. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that's like less than a candy bar. I'd love for you to check out my page on Patreon. Still waiting on those extra $2 for you folks. Who's going to do it? Anybody want to do it? Uh, After that happens, I'm going to drop a brand new series exclusive to Patreon where I read through all my cookbooks on my shelf that are just behind me, cover to cover, take my notes, and one by one, I'll release a video all about what I learned from them. So that means recipes, stories, dish inspiration, all for, that's right, a dollar a month qualifies you access to those videos. So there's a ton of other awesome stuff that comes along with giving me your money. I'm going to do exclusive live streams and behind-the-scenes videos. I'm giving away some gear as well. So if you come here uh, to look forward to my gear videos, that's definitely a great, great place to go uh, and support me. And then you get those rewards uh, just on me for doing that. I just sincerely appreciate your support. I can't thank you guys enough. You make it possible. If you have stories you want covered on next week's show, um, we got a couple sent in this week from you guys, so I love that. Um, go ahead and shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. If you are watching on YouTube, subscribe if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears so much, so thank you, thank you, thank you. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.